Welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the CIO of Private Client Endowments and Foundations here at Brown Advisory. And today I'll be joined by my frequent co-host, Erica Pagel, who's the CIO of Sustainable Investing. And we are delighted to have Keith Stone join us, who's a partner and private equity portfolio manager. He has an excellent vantage point into private markets, which we believe play a vital role in innovation and outperformance over the longer term. Today, he'll share his insights about the latest developments in private equity, including valuations, the pace of capital deployment, and the challenges private companies are facing, even as they continue to be hotbeds of innovation and growth. During our last podcast, we discussed some of the rays of sunshine that had emerged over the summer. We saw a break in inflationary momentum, the potential for a Fed pause early next year, and there was extreme bearishness in positioning, which is usually an indication that the market is oversold. But after a brief market rally, investors have seen some meaningful headwinds emerge. Hotter than expected inflation reports have led to an aggressive Fed commentary and a major repricing in the interest rate world. Investors are now expecting the Fed to hike to around 4.5% in the middle of next year. That's 1.5% higher than was expected just two months ago. The expectations are now that rates will be higher for longer, and that has implications for the prices of all assets. The risk that the Fed may be tightening too much into a weakening economy has risen as well. These dynamics have taken a major toll on both stock and bond markets, which have shed nearly $60 trillion of value this year. That's more than three times the losses during the pandemic, the difference being in 2020, bonds held their value. Recent data on job openings show that the tighter policy is starting to have an effect on the real economy. The 1 million decline in job openings was the largest since the beginning of the pandemic. The labor market is cooling, although there are still 4 million more job openings than unemployed workers. The swift move higher in U.S. rates has also put pressure on other currencies, whose central banks are further behind the curve. The U.S. dollar is up 20% versus its trading partners, and that is compounding the effects of inflation overseas and putting many central bankers in a tough position. The British pound tumbled this month after the government unveiled a growth plan complete with tax cuts and caps on energy costs that markets feared would add to inflationary pressures and worsen the UK's fiscal position. This highlighted the problems that may be faced by other highly indebted major developed markets that are struggling with both low growth and high inflation. While the US is taking a painful dose of medicine in the form of higher rates, other countries may not have that flexibility and may not follow suit. The Russia-Ukraine crisis has also been increasing in intensity since we last spoke. Faced with a successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, Vladimir Putin seems to be upping the ante. Putin and Russia have repeatedly brought up the right to use nuclear weapons in the conflict, and Russia is in the process of trying to enlist 300,000 additional troops, even as the country sees an exodus of potential conscripts. Putin's latest speech was his most direct in challenging NATO's motivations and actions, and was seen by many as an escalation in the war. This has not just geopolitical implications, but implications for commodities and Europe's energy crisis. While asset prices have come down across all markets and valuations in many areas are below long-term averages, clearly the macro outlook has worsened. So lots to talk about. Why don't we start with your thoughts on the macro outlook, Erica? Our last podcast, we were talking about markets that had rallied 17% off of the lows, and, and now we're back retesting those lows. What's going on and what are you watching? Thanks, Sid. Let's start by what's happening domestically. The S&P 500 reached 2022 low in mid-June. Then on our last podcast, we were talking about the market rally that we saw over the summer. And then more recently, the markets have retested those lows once again. 
As of a few days ago, 40% of the S&P 500 companies are now down more than 30% year to date on a price basis. And there's nearly 70 names that actually have positive performance. Most of those are energy, but there's a a few food uh, and healthcare names mixed in. So the point here is that most companies, most sectors are in the red so far this year. Investor sentiment is very bearish. Uh, We don't think that we've reached that capitulation moment yet. We often look at the volatility index uh, as a measure for capitulation, and it's it's moved higher, but it's uh, not nearly the level that we saw in March of, of 2020. So there's no shortage of things that that we could talk about. And, you know, frankly, through the end of September, the equity markets have felt like we've been in, um, you know, an equity market purgatory. The market has come to the realization that global growth is slowing and terminal rates are going up. So maybe if I could just focus on three areas. First, the main driver of the markets today, which, which you talked about, it's macro, it's inflation. We're seeing sticky inflation that is not budging. You know, prices at the pump have come down. We've seen some supply chain pressures ease, like shipping. But the reality is, is 30-year mortgage rates are high. They're above 7%, and food inflation is the highest it's been in 30 years. And second, you know, the, the speed of the rate increases show that the Fed is clearly committed to bringing inflation down. Um, we're almost in this kind of hurry up and wait phase, and unfortunately, we're not going to know if inflation has peaked or the full impact of the Fed actions for probably a few more months, if not early next year. And then third, earnings expectations. We've said for a while that resetting of forward earnings expectations would actually be welcome news for the market. And we started to see that in June. And the good news is we have seen third and fourth quarter of this year estimates come down, but it's likely they need to come down further. And, you know, lastly, I'll just end with some some comments on the global markets and economies. You know, the Fed actions impact each of these. Foreign currency translation to the U.S. dollar only adds to global inflation concerns. Rising energy prices probably have the biggest impact to Europe, but it also hits gross disposable income for several regions within emerging markets. And, you know, the dollar appreciation is impacting those regions of emerging markets. Probably the most concern is those with larger debt. Um, But that probably means that central banks probably have to tighten for longer. So specifically on China for a minute, there's a challenging macro backdrop right now. Recovery seems to be slowing. COVID lockdowns are weighing on the economy a property sector with overbuilding imbalances that's now weakening. And then you also have geopolitical tensions between China and Taiwan, all on the flip side where, uh, you know, inflation is lower than most regions uh, and not to mention uh, pretty depressed valuations. The MSCI China index is down more more than 30% year to date. So to conclude, there's a lot to unpack in global markets today. We don't know when the final rate hike will be by by the Fed, and we also don't um, expect immediate change to these Fed actions. So we're closely monitoring these economic trends over the next couple of months. Sid, maybe back to you. These are all issues that our team is focused on and discussing every day. Let me ask you a similar question. What are you watching today? Uh 
a lot of the same things that you are. I mean, clearly I'm watching inflation like a hawk. It really feels like everything in markets today is hinging on the path of inflation to some degree. So, you know, what's changed since we last talked? We've priced in inflation being stickier, being more persistent. We've had to price in the Fed hiking rates higher and doing it for longer. And this is a big deal because we just haven't seen evidence yet that inflation is on a sustainable path lower. We got one good month over month number and then we've returned to seeing uh, inflation. So we've gone from this lower for longer environment to higher for longer. So, you know, honestly, I was more eager to rebalance into stocks in May and June than I am today because we've seen a reset higher in rates even further, right? That makes bonds more attractive. When we think about concepts like the equity risk premium, the earnings yield that you're getting relative to bond yields, um, bonds have actually sold off more relative to what you would expect than, than stocks have. And so uh, in some ways, what we're seeing is just this, this painful reset, a weaning of the, the US economy in particular off of zero interest rates and back to a more normal equilibrium. Um, the good news in that is that we've taken most of the pain already and prospective returns, if you look out, you know, five and 10 years across all asset classes look better today than at the beginning of the year. But until inflation starts coming down to that 3% range, I don't think we're going to be close to a Fed pause. And that means tighter policy, further weakening in the economy and more upward pressure on, on the dollar, which is at multi-decade highs, which, which brings me to the next thing I'm just spending a lot of time thinking about. You mentioned it is, is currencies. When the dollar gets this strong, things can tend to break. And that often happens in emerging markets when they have too much US dollar denominated debt that they can no longer service. But we're seeing it happen in strange places like the UK, and it could happen in Europe. It could happen in, in Japan where they have been much slower to raise rates because growth is slower and perhaps they think the economies can't withstand it, but they're actually seeing even higher inflation. So, you know, what's happening right now is there's a divergence between the rates of inflation in the U.S. and elsewhere. If you look out one year in the U.S., we're expecting 2% inflation. If you look out in Europe, you're expecting 10% plus. Some people think 20% in the U.K. And yet, interest rates are lower and bond yields are lower there. So money is flowing into the US dollar. Um, and it doesn't look like there are dynamic set up for that to stop. So, you know, if you can't raise interest rates, there's also a limit to what you can do to support your currency in, in a lasting way. So, you know, what's happening with the UK right now is such a great example. They released a plan to stimulate growth at a time when they already have an inflation problem. The market says, that's going to make inflation worse. It's going to make your fiscal situation worse. Uh, rates start soaring um, and they start to realize that things could break. Um, pension funds that have leveraged uh, investments in their fixed income markets. It's not a necessarily a solvency issue, but it's a liquidity issue um, that they need to come in, step in and, and actually support their bond market at the same time as they're trying to do quantitative tightening and actually get rid of some of their bond holdings. You know, this is one of the reasons that we've been more comfortable being overweight U.S. assets and the U.S. dollar. Uh, and until the Fed stops hiking rates, that may be the dynamic. But I think we're going to have to consider currencies a lot more uh, in the coming quarters. And whether or not we'll want to or need to diversify into other currencies as the dollar gets more expensive and we approach a change in Fed policy. 
The last uh, thing is just leverage. And the UK example is an example of where, where leverage can hurt you. Pensions funds levering uh, into investments into UK gilts. Debt was free for nearly 10 years or you're close to free. Uh, there are many companies out there that won't be able to handle this reset in rates. So we're watching leverage levels across all the uh, companies we're investing in, but also at the country level. Now is not a time to be over levered. Uh, so if you look across our portfolios, we have much lower levels of leverage at the company level. We don't use leverage typically at the portfolio level. And there may be a distressed investment cycle uh, that comes up in the next few quarters that we're prepping for, just as we have cycles in the past. The yield curve is inverted. Bond yields and treasuries are now approaching the Fed's latest terminal rate. What do you think? Are bonds attractive again? I would say absolutely. Bonds are a lot more attractive, particularly in the U.S., I would say. Uh, we now have positive real yields. So that's yields adjusted for the expected rate of inflation at every single point along the curve. And actually, that, the highest real yields um, that we've had in almost 15 years. So this relies on the inflation meeting those expectations, which are actually just above 2% now over the next five to 10 years. So the market is telling you, we think the Fed is serious. We think the Fed will be able to bring inflation down. Uh, but if you believe uh, even that inflation might be 3%, you're still getting a positive real yield. And, um, and that's something we haven't seen in a really long time. So after more than a decade of, of uh, what we call TINA, uh, you know, there is no alternative to investing in equities, you have a real fighting chance with a 60-40, 70-30 portfolio. So we are recommending slowly rebuilding those bond portfolios as we see better yields. Uh, you know, if you compare a 4% return on treasuries and a 5 to 6% return on investment grade corporate bonds, that looks a lot more attractive um, relative to, uh, say, for instance, some of the cap rates that people were doing deals at in real estate, core real estate over the last few years or, or the returns from certain hedge funds. Uh, so we've leaned a lot on alternatives in recent years, and it has helped. Uh, they still play an important role, especially those that can help us defend against inflation. But, but I think it's time to start rebuilding bond portfolios. Uh, I would do it with high credit quality bonds, no high yield yet, as we're still uh, at you know, kind of the early stages of a slowdown and, and potentially a recession. Uh, in the economy, so folks more on treasuries, but uh, these bonds can also then be a liquid source of capital to buy stocks if if they fall further. Sid, I, I tend to agree. I mean, triple A corporate yields near five percent that compares to just under two percent last year, and then you evaluations. The the Barclays aggregate uh, is producing equity like returns, and you know the index is down mid teens on a year to date basis. So valuations are also becoming compelling. And as you said, we're, we're watching spreads. So we've been leaning more short duration within fixed income, and that has been successful this year, not only in fixed income, but also in equities. How do you think about long duration risk today? Uh, I think it's a really interesting point you make on kind of short duration. We think about that as a bond market term, but you can use it for stocks too. Uh, so the nearer term the cash flows are coming back to uh, an equity holder, uh, the shorter the duration of those 
So you think about kind of value businesses, which are earning a lot of cash today. Those are shorter duration than these really high growth companies making no money today. And they're going to have earnings in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And and they've been hit just as hard as long duration bonds. And, and we've been very intentionally trying to be short duration in our bond portfolios and be shorter duration, at least balanced in our stock portfolio. So kind of leaning more value. All of these pressures that we've talked about are leading to a global resetting of growth expectations right now. We're recovering from the demand overload coming out of COVID lockdowns. We're also recovering from supply chain impacts from the war in Ukraine. But we have an economic deterioration within European regions. There is this growth resetting that's happening across the board. It's happening with public companies, corporates, emerging markets, and perhaps all of the things or trends from the last 10 years. And this also includes the FANG stocks and other market leaders over the past decade. You know, internally, we're debating whether those leaders uh, in the past 10 to 15 years who have, who have been very successful, if they will be the leaders in the next market cycle. And as you mentioned, we're starting to focus more on growth, but growth at a reasonable price. So finding companies and strategies for client portfolios that have the best value and growth at the same time. And frankly, we haven't had that opportunity for a while. Keith, you're thinking about the next 10 years, 20 years, uh, a much longer term orientation focused on private markets. Um, Maybe we could just start off with what are you seeing today in private markets? Yeah, thanks, Sid. And and maybe I'll just start with um, noting that we are investing across the spectrum. So um, I think a lot of the the focus, I, I lead our venture capital investments, and I think that's probably top of mind for a lot of people these days. But um, I think you know we'll touch a little bit on what we're seeing across all the different areas that we invest in. So that's buyout, private credit, real estate um, are also you know major parts of our portfolios. And I think our, our parts of our portfolio that are probably um, relatively better positioned uh, maybe than venture, at least from an existing portfolio perspective. So maybe just some quick hits on these within buyout. Um, and there's a common thread here. I think, you know, valuations, if this environment persists, our expectation is that valuations will be impacted. Um, you know, I think for buyout, the valuation environment over the last couple of years has been a lot more reasonable than what we've seen from the venture capital side of our portfolio. So generally speaking, we expect uh, less significant contraction there. I think also what we're seeing, which is consistent across the board, is there's just general market uncertainty and it's impacting new deal activity. So if you look across our portfolio, um, buyout deals, real estate deals, private credit deals, venture deals, deal volume has just slowed down considerably as people are trying to figure out what this new environment looks like and kind of what the new normal is going forward. On the buyout side, debt's a lot more expensive than it was a couple years ago. And so pricing expectations are probably going to need to come down before we start to see deal volume pick up materially in that segment of the market. I think it's a similar thing with real estate. If you um, if you don't have to transact right now, you're, you're probably not going to. And on the private credit side, just if you look at the, the moves in interest rates, and you guys have alluded to this throughout the conversation, interest rates are a lot higher than they used to be. And so I think that bodes really well for new deals that are going to get priced from a debt perspective. But most companies are not taking on debt right now if they can avoid it, just given the, the increase in pricing. Um, so I think that's that's a consistent thing across what we're seeing. 
within our buyout portfolio, I would say our managers tend to um, to use lower leverage than the broader market, which I think will position us fairly well uh, for this environment. And I think they also, people have seen the writing on the wall that a recessionary environment is in the cards for the last couple of years. And so for the most part, across our portfolio, buyout, real estate's the same way. Uh, we're seeing our managers underwriting with the expectations of at the at the best kind of a flat um, exit environment from a multiple perspective, but often contracting multiples. Just thinking about again the the prospects for a recessionary environment over the whole period for these companies. So I think in summary, um, you know across what we're seeing, the valuation environment now uh, is obviously. Um, I think going to be a lot more attractive for new deals and new capital that's being deployed over the next couple of years if things persist. As far as what that means for our existing portfolio, it's still really early, and I think time will tell on, on how that shakes out. But I think at the end of the day, we try to partner with managers that are able to generate really compelling returns across um, you know, all the, the various market scenarios. So bull markets, bear markets in, in a you know, more normal environment. And so I think we feel pretty good about, about the way they're positioned across the board. So thus far, Keith, we haven't really seen much in the way of markdowns in private portfolios. I mean, it's kind of one of these periods where it's a source of stability um, relative to, to public markets. Um, I know it'll be very different in buyout and venture and, and real estate, but what can you say about how far along you think we are into evaluation reset in each of those areas? Like, has reality set in yet? Uh, is there kind of a shoe to drop in private valuations? Yeah, so I, I think we're very early across all of those categories. So I think the reality is right now, deal volume is just a lot lower than it has been historically. And I think that's a reflection of um, the uncertain environment and the fact that if you can avoid it at all, you're going to avoid, um, you know, raising money or or selling your company in this environment just because it's it's a little bit less clear what it's going to look like than um, than maybe it has been the last couple of years. And so, our expectation is that it'll take a couple of quarters for this to work its way through the private markets across the board. Uh, of course, we're seeing examples on a one-off basis as, as um, you know, companies do have to, there are some companies that are just in a position where they have to raise capital or, um, you know, maybe on the real estate side, if you have expiring debt in the, the next quarter or so, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to see a pricing environment that's, that's much less favorable. So I think we see the deals that are getting done are getting done at lower valuations. Um, I think anecdotally, our managers are telling us that the diligence uh, time that they have to do deals, particularly on the venture side, is just a lot longer. So there were periods of time over the last couple of years where the velocity of, of investment was just so significant that it was really condensing diligence timelines uh, on, on some of these deals, particularly for the really hot companies. I think now, uh, just given the, the fact that everyone's kind of taking a pause, uh, we're starting to see you know much more reasonable and, and rational um, diligence processes for deals. And again, I think that's a reflection of, of just the market environment we're in. So look, I think if, if you can avoid it at all, uh, particularly on the venture side, if you can avoid raising money uh, over the next quarter or two, um, you're going to do everything you can to, to avoid that and, and not have to basically be repriced in this market environment. Um, you know, we'll see how long this environment holds. If we're talking about a similar 
pricing environment for the next 12 or 18 months, I think we're going to see a lot more companies that are going to, um, you know, that are going to need to raise capital during that market. And I think that's where we'll see a little bit more of the, the trickle down throughout all segments of the market. And so in, in the venture world where, you know, it's kind of maybe late stage venture more comped to public markets, which have seen valuations in high growth software kind of down 50% plus. Are, are you in the small number of deals that are happening? Are you seeing them done also kind of down a similar amount? And then is, is the comment on kind of not raising capital now also maybe, you know, a kind of a hope or expectation that companies will kind of grow into uh, perhaps a, a lower market multiple, but they'll be at a higher valuation because of their growth? Yeah, so so maybe just to start with the the last one, I think that's definitely the case, and we're we're seeing it throughout our portfolio with with some of our companies. I, I think the reality is that the later stage segments of the venture market are the most likely to be impacted, um, uh, I guess, sooner and more significantly than other segments of the market, just given the fact that those are larger, more mature companies that more generally. Um, uh, reflect the public market expectations from a comp set perspective. Um, so I think in those instances, many of the best companies have been able to raise significant capital over the last couple of years. And so it was not uncommon to see later stage companies that were raising several hundred million dollars in rounds. And I think those groups, um, you know, have the ability to pull down on some of their spending and, and kind of cut their burn rate a little bit to extend the financing window. Um, and in those instances, if you're growing 100% year over year and you're able to do that um, you know, for the next two years, even if multiples cut in half, maybe you're looking at a flat round versus a down round. And I think that's a really good outcome for a lot of those businesses. So, so that's kind of the playbook in this market is um, you know, be really conservative about how you're thinking about um, spending and burn, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you maintain that growth rate. So it doesn't help anyone if uh, you cut your spending and your growth rate slows to 20%. You know, if you have to raise money two years from now and you've you've grown 40% over that time frame, it's still going to be pretty painful for you um, from, you know, if multiples are where they are, which is, you know, call it 50% down. Um, if it's an environment where you're able to maintain a high growth rate uh, and, and extend your runway longer, I think that's what what most companies are trying to do. So I think I think that's generally the playbook, um, and we'll see if people are able to execute that over the next over the next couple of years. Um, you know, I think to the the first question, it's one of the things that is important to keep in mind with venture, and I think particularly when we think about the impact public markets will have on the venture space. Um, is a lot of times we look at you know what happens to the average company, and the reality is venture is a game of outliers. And so um, I think it's very idiosyncratic with each company that's pricing. We saw an example recently with Figma, which was acquired by Adobe at, at 50 times revenue. And so that's a, that's a deal and a transaction that um, I don't think any of us predicted would happen in this market, particularly as you look at where multiples are, are sitting. But it was a company that um, you know is best in class at what it does, and that that Adobe felt like it had to own. And so, to Adobe, it was worth twenty billion dollars. And so, that's not um, that's not to say that that's going to happen across the board. But I do think that it's indicative of the fact that if you are a great company, you're going to be able to 
raise money at, at pretty significant valuations or you know, potentially go public or be acquired at pretty significant valuations. And we have examples of that throughout our portfolio. Maybe one of the companies that we, we can touch on quickly is a company called Databricks, which is the largest active position across our, our private equity partners platform. So they've raised, uh, in the summer of 2021, they raised $1.6 billion. So again, um, just the sheer magnitude of that round size is, is pretty considerable. Um, if you're able to you know, temper down your spending, that, that gives you several years of runway. Um, so the ability to kind of you know, ride it out through this market. They've got a ton of cash on their balance sheet. Um, when they raised that round, they were doing around $600 million of, of annual recurring revenue. Um, so that was a 60X, 63X um, multiple. They raised at a $38 billion valuation, so a really pricey valuation, obviously. If you fast forward to today, uh, there was a recent report that they're doing a billion dollars of ARR um, just a year later. And so all of a sudden, that multiple that was 63, 64, 65 times revenue is now 38 times. And so that's still quite expensive, but Databricks is a, a unified data analytics platform. Its closest public market comp is Snowflake. Um, Snowflake is traded down 50%, but still has a $55 billion market cap and is actually trading at a 37 times revenue multiple. And so Databricks has been able to grow into a valuation that's pretty similar to what we're seeing for Snowflake. Um, and again, this is a company that's at scale. I mean, if you're growing at, at that rate with a billion dollars of, of revenue, um, you know, there's very few businesses that, um, that also has best-in-class you know, enterprise SaaS metrics. There's very few businesses that have that profile. So those are the types of outlier scenarios that I think are, are really interesting. If you are not in that situation, if you're kind of an average run-of-the-mill company and you've got to raise around right now, I think it's going to be pretty painful. And what we are seeing is that um, there's some down rounds. There's uh, the return of structure is going to be something I think we'll, we'll see a lot more over the next couple of quarters. And so a lot of companies are saying, you know, all things equal, I'd rather not raise a down round. And the only way that math works for a growth investor is to put some structure on that that protects the downside for them and makes that that um, investment a little bit um, more attractive. But that's not a great thing, you know, for the company or, or the industry at large. Keith, you talked a lot about cash burn. What does the runway specifically look like for companies? Is it months? Yeah, so for some companies it's months, and and that's um, that's not a good not a good position to be in. Um, you know, I think as we look at our portfolio, fortunately, most of our companies have eighteen months plus twenty four months plus, and some even have you know three or four years. Um, and Databricks is one that falls into that camp that has you know probably three four years of runway, depending on uh, how conservative they are from a um, from a cash burn perspective. Um, so I think every manager that we invest with is advising their companies to extend runway um, as long as they can do so in a way that maintains a growth profile that'll be attractive to downstream investors. So again, I think you know that's the that's the key is um, it, it, you you don't want to raise capital in this market, but if cutting your burn to extend your runway really changes the profile of your company and your growth prospects, 
that's not necessarily a great outcome either. And so I think some companies are going to have to make the hard decision in the near term of, do we take what's hopefully a flat round if you've been able to maintain a pretty um, strong growth profile over the you know two years, call it, since your last round? Um, you know, I think a flat round is a win in this market. Uh, but some companies are going to have to take down rounds, and some will be down significantly. Um, you know, fortunately, the vast majority of our portfolio, as of this point, is not in that situation. But um, but I think it's coming. Keith, what uh, adjustments are companies making to conserve cash today? We've heard a lot about layoffs. How are early stage companies thinking about workforce growth? Yeah, so I think it's. Uh, I think it's going to be different across each segment of the market. I think the earliest stage companies, um, you know, are looking to build and scale their organizations, and I don't, I don't think that's going to change. Um, so for our our funds that are investing, you know, pre seed or seed stage, um, you know, that capital, the the use of that capital is is really to figure out your your early product and then start to build out a team to scale and go to market and try to. Um, lock-in product market fit. And, and so I think those teams will continue to hire um, um, you know, pretty aggressively, and I think that's what that, that funding is for. I think anecdotally what we're hearing is that the expectation is it's easier to hire in this market than maybe it was previously, um, where a lot of the burn that companies were we're spending was going towards headcount and in pretty high employee salaries. Um, so I think if that comes down, it's a little bit easier across the board for the smaller companies in particular. For those companies that are later stage uh, in their life cycle, I, I think they are being pretty proactive about um, you know looking at their operational and their org structure and saying you know where can we cut back and where do we maybe get a little bit ahead of ourselves. And so I think we're seeing the same thing with public companies that have had. Um, really nice runs on the public market that have been able to grow consistently, but are looking around and saying, you know, maybe we don't need quite as many, um, you know, salespeople or product managers or whatever it is. And I think we're seeing a similar exercise across the board with with the venture-backed companies. The later stage you are, the more room there is probably to trim back. Um, but again, it's a balance of, you know, making sure that you have the ability to um, to continue to grow your business. At the end of the day, with venture, that's that's what the bet is that we're making, and that our, our the venture capitalists that we we invest with are making, is that these are companies that are going to be significantly larger in the future than they are today. And so, I think the earlier segments of the market, in particular, you know, multiples matter. The price you're paying for these companies when you're investing matters, but. At the end of the day, the biggest driver of success is, is this company going to be much bigger in the future than it is today? And it, it requires hiring people and, and spending money to get there. And I think in this market, that's still going to be well-received if you're you know, a best-in-class company and, and have the potential to build a, a, a truly kind of breakout product. So Keith, maybe you could talk a little bit about you know, fundamentally how companies are performing. I'm sure it's very different when looking at, you know, an enterprise software company versus a direct-to-consumer company or or a crypto company right now. But, you know, what are companies telling you about how they're performing relative to plan? What areas are performing well versus poorly? And, and maybe how are our investors and how are you responding to that? Yeah, I think I think that's been an interesting development is as we talk to our funds and as we talk to companies, it seems like things are still going pretty well across the board. So, 
you know, for the most part, companies have hit their plans for Q2, um, uh, you know, which is great. I think we're seeing a lot of our portfolio companies are reforecasting for what, you know, 2022 uh, year end numbers might look like. And so our expectation is Q3 and Q4, there will be some some tightening from, uh, particularly on the enterprise SaaS side, from customers. And, and a lot of those are the public companies that are going to tighten up their their spend. And so I think the the forecasts are coming down, but so far uh, companies have hit their their plans, and I think that's that's also true not just in venture, but in buyout and um, you know across our buyout portfolio, companies are are you know doing well and kind of on track for for hitting their targets. And maybe to call out one example, there's a company called Groundworks, which is actually the fourth or fifth largest position across our pet program, and that's a business that's a basement waterproofing and foundation business. So. Um, you know, if you think about the story for this company and the outlook for this company, even in a challenging market environment, there's really strong revenue growth. There's really strong EBITDA growth. People are going to continue to need to treat their basements. People are going to continue to need to, you know, have foundational repairs if that comes up. And so we're seeing costs are rising with labor and, and all the things that are impacting other other companies in this space. But there's also pretty strong pricing power given it's a it's a critical area for consumers. Similarly, on the real estate side, I mean, I think the the you know rents and incomes have been have been on on plan. There's other parts of the market uh, that have very clearly been uh, more significantly impacted. So I think crypto is one that's um, uh, on the venture side has been has been hit pretty hard, and I think. What we've seen is for a long time, people um, talked about crypto as uncorrelated to the public markets. And I think that uh, that has been largely debunked at this point, as you see the way some of these uh, tokens are, are pricing. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's it's uh, it's a gift and a curse. I think the fact that most of these tokens are are pretty liquid and able to be traded on, you know, pretty much near instantaneously at at meaningful volumes um, means that you've seen a significant correction uh, that that's happened quite quickly. More more akin to the public markets, yeah, yeah very much so. And so, um, you know, I think the the flip side of that is if you think about a go forward investment opportunity, the crypto segment of the market has repriced overnight. And so, when we talk to our funds that are doing deals in the, that segment of the market, the valuations are um, across the board, you know, fifty percent lower than they were. Um, a year ago. And I think that's not what we're seeing across the other segments of the market where that trickle-down effect still has to play out. But with crypto, because it's so liquid, because you're you're literally seeing a ticker of where all these other projects are trading, um, it, it's a very quick correction in a very condensed market cycle relative to, to other parts of the market. Um, I think fintech is another category that we haven't seen a swift correction yet, but I think if you look at some of the public companies, particularly in the lending space, um, uh, those those companies have been under pressure, and and I think that's starting to trickle down as well. And and so, you know, fintech is a category we're still really excited about. I think if you think about um, just the infrastructure, the legacy infrastructure that our financial system is built on, it's it's ripe for opportunity. But um, it was a pretty hot market over the last couple of years, and and pricing and valuations probably got a little bit ahead of of where it should have been. Um, but there's other categories that we think are, are, you know, really compelling and attractive right now. So one of those is computational bio or tech bio as some people call it. And so, you know, I think that's, 
that's an opportunity where you've seen some of the first generation of those companies that are applying um, a lot of the innovation we've seen in kind of the deep technology segment of the market over the last several years and marrying that with, you know, science and, and biology to develop new drugs or new platforms or new, um, uh, you know, synthetic compounds. Um, I, I think that's a category that is set up over the next two decades for, um, for just great growth and, and is also an area that really hasn't had as much of the excess in valuation maybe as the traditional tech and enterprise software side of the world has been. So um, we continue to think there are really interesting pockets of opportunity um, across the board. And, you know, I guess that that's probably a key takeaway is the go forward investment opportunity for privates is, um, is really compelling as we see it. I think the new deals will eventually start to, to get done with more frequency. And, and our expectation is those will get done at much more favorable entry valuations than, than they have been getting done at over the last couple of years. And that's a pretty exciting place to be for, for new capital deployment. Keith, staying on opportunities right now, particularly in venture, what are you seeing on the sustainability side? We're getting a lot of questions about energy transition, lower carbon, even carbon capture. Um, how are you thinking about these opportunities? Yeah, so I think that's an interesting one for us. We think there's a huge opportunity uh, on the climate and sustainability side in particular, and we're excited to spend a lot more time uh, in that part of the market. We have uh, one of our vehicles that we, um, that we manage is called ICAP, um, which is a returns-oriented, impact-focused uh, vehicle that has a specific mandate around climate and sustainability among, among some other categories. Um, I think that's a, a part of the market we're really excited to, um, to be more active in. We've had some exposure to uh, climate and sustainability across our portfolio through our more generalist strategies over the years. And so we've seen some really successful outcomes and really impactful outcomes. But I think one of the things that we're excited about is just the flow of talent back to the climate and sustainability space um, is really significant. And so, you know, I think if we go back 10 years, um, you know, there was the clean tech movement in the kind of 2008, 2009, early 2010s period. And I think there were a lot of interesting companies, but they they just struggled to hit the scale and have the impact that um, I think a lot of the, the investors had hoped for. You know, I think now we're finally seeing um, the real skill that's being achieved by a lot of these venture-backed early-stage companies. And it's not just skill from, you know, a revenue and business model perspective, but I think a skill in terms of an impact on the world. And so I think that's what's really exciting for us. One of the, um, one of the managers that we have invested with for a long time who's been really active in this space is called DCVC, which is based out in San Francisco. And they are a large investor in a company called Pivot Bio. So Pivot Bio is using... Uh, AI and machine learning um, to basically come up with and create uh, compounds to replace synthetic fertilizer. So synthetic fertilizer is responsible for about 10% of global greenhouse gas. So it's a huge problem from an environmental perspective. Um, you know, Pivot Bio is able to, to basically create naturally occurring compounds um, and, and tweak them to, to um, essentially increase the amount of nitrogen they're able to produce in the soil. And so right now that's being used. It's not theoretical. It's, it's being used on millions of acres of corn today. 
and they plan to, to um, in the very near term, be able to, to also be used on wheat and rice and soy. And so I think that's an example of the type of impact you can have. That's obviously, if you just think about the sheer size of the, the fertilizer market, I mean, it's a massive market, but it's also a massive, you know, impact from a, um, from a sustainability and, and just a human health and wellness perspective. Keith, you talked about a lot of interesting areas. What do you think is kind of the most exciting across private markets right now, uh, whether that's because of what's happened from a pricing perspective or just the long-term potential. And then Eric, I'd love to hear the same from you. I think the opportunity with computational bio is, is really, um, is really significant. And if you think about traditional biotech as a category, um, it's, been pretty manual. It's been pretty slow to adopt technology and innovation. And I think we've seen this play out. We're seeing it play out in climate and sustainability, I think is another one that that is is in this category, where the ability to apply the innovation that we've seen over the last 10 years to these kind of sleepy segments that have massive real world impact, massive revenue opportunities, but have been really slow to adopt and implement technology is super interesting. And so for us, we we have a thesis and we've leaned in on, you know, computational bio as a category. And, and we think there's relatively few firms today that have the fluency to be able to understand the tech at, at its core, the technical components of these things, as well as the science. And when you marry those, both with firms, so venture firms that are investing in this space, which is relatively uncommon, but also with teams, and we're seeing more and more of those teams that have world-class science backgrounds and world-class technical backgrounds. Um, the the sky's the limit in terms of you know the potential for again you know the impact on humanity and, and you know what comes with that is is a really big scalable business opportunity. So I think that's one of the things on the venture side of the world that we're most excited about. Thanks, Keith. Erica, what about you? I mean, two areas. I still think that energy transition will be a multi-year opportunity. As Keith mentioned, we're looking across the value chain for opportunities. But I also think that U.S. small cap growth is becoming more attractive. Many of these companies have a majority of their revenues and profits from the U.S. The valuation spread between small and large caps is becoming more compelling. You know, But I'd focus more on quality here, looking to avoid the more speculative growth companies that that are in the benchmark and you know also keep in mind that small cap tends to perform better before recessions end and oftentimes can lead coming out of a recession guess i'll jump in with some final thoughts um i think those are really interesting ideas and i think we're reflecting those in in many different portfolios I'd start maybe with something that rhymes with what Keith was talking about, and I've talked about a lot, which is is just the opportunity in public biotech, which I still think is really compelling because valuations have reset so much. We have record numbers of companies trading at less than the cash on their balance sheet. We're starting to see more um, strategic M&A from the very cash-rich and growth-poor uh, pharma segment, and you're starting to see some really interesting developments in kind of personalized medicine, targeted oncology, and all of these developments, I think, that are occurring on the on the private side, which are helping speed um, drug discovery. So, you know, it's kind of one area of offense. But a, a much more boring area of opportunity, I think, is the bond market right now. And I think for for many years, we've just cut our bond market allocations down to the lowest possible levels, and and that was rational. They weren't offering much return. 
uh, and a very negative yield when you considered uh, the rate of inflation. Uh, we're back into the positive now. We're getting reasonable yields. And, and I think it's an interesting time to build our bond portfolios back up. So with that, thank you everyone so much for uh, listening uh, today. Thank you, Erica, again, for joining. Thank you, Keith, our special guest, for coming in and, and taking us on a tour of private markets. And we hope to uh, have you all join us next time.